were curious about which elder to talk to for uh, college football, it's Alan. If you're curious about which elder to talk to for football football, it's Cosmos, so you can cover European football, English football specifically. Um, we are concluding, wrapping up our sermon series um, today, The Good Life. And um, as we do this, uh, since we're on the last commandment, it seems appropriate that it should be a test day. So um, we're going to uh, just do a little test here. And you can just think in your head. If you want to say it out loud, you can. I know there's risk involved in that because you could get it wrong, but it's okay. We all mess up. So um, question one. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you what's the first commandment, then I'll ask you what's the second. Then we're going to put it on the screen and we'll read it together, okay? So we're going to read through all nine of them before we come to this last one. So what's the, what's the first one? Okay, let's put that on the screen and read it. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, now what's the second one? Okay, yep, let's read the second one. Let's read together. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Okay, now that goes on, but we're going to pause right there. What's the next one? I think I'm hearing some of you correctly, but it's hard to hear. Let's put it on the screen and let's read it together. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Okay, so now we're to the fourth one. What's the fourth one? Sabbath day, right? Let's read that one. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And again, that one goes on, but we're going to pause right there. And then what's the next one, the fifth one? All right, some people are good at this, honoring the father and mother. Yeah, hopefully we're as good at doing it as we are at, uh, at uh, saying that. So back up one slide. There we go. Let's read this. You should know the next one. You're queued up, ready to go, okay? Oh, you've been quiet. The next one, I want to hear it loud. Okay, but right now let's read this one. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Does anybody know what the sixth one is? Right, let's read that one together. You shall not murder. And then what's the seventh? Let's put it on the screen. You shall not commit adultery. And then the eighth. Yep, you shall not steal. And the ninth. Let's put it on the screen and read it. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Those ten are all about explicit actions or those nine, sorry, are all about explicit actions. What's interesting about the tenth is it turns inward to our heart. Let's put that one on the screen and read that together. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. So, you guys did good on that test. That's good. Um, social media today, like we talk about social media a lot, right? Social media is good and social media is bad, right? It's a tool. It's how we use it. But one thing that social media has done has made coveting easier and more expansive. It's like in front of you all the time. Not only is your neighbor's car in your neighbor's driveway there for you to look at and covet and go, man, I really wish I had that car, but 
every single person's car across the globe is in front of you on social media so you can see it and covet it, right? And so it's accelerated our ability to covet uh, and, and fed that in so many ways. In fact, you know what? We, we look at all those things, and then you have to ask the question, wait, is what I'm seeing even real? Because half of it's photoshopped. I mean, right? Reels aren't always real. You got to remember that, right? In fact, on social media, if you want a vacation that you can show everybody else, you don't have to spend the money and go have the vacation. There's a website that will do it for you called fakeavacation.com. You send them some pictures and they'll put you in places all over the world, construct it for you, and you put it, on, put it on social media, and there you go. Right? That way everybody else can covet your vacation. We all want. The great temptation is to think that when your desire is fulfilled, that you will finally be happy. But is that really what experience teaches us? Experience teaches us something much different than that, right? That we're not really happy when we get more. We just end up wanting more, wanting the next thing. God is saying, desire me more than anything else, that I am enough for you. That's what he's saying in the Ten with this Tenth Commandment. The template, he's saying, to live without coveting is to live by learning to be content with God. And that's, that's our title today. That's the theme we're working off of is this. Do not covet, but live with contentment. And we're going to, and there's a slide for that, I think. But we're going to tackle that with two main questions. The first question is, what is coveting? And then the second question we'll get to later is, how do I become content? So first, what is coveting? And you can put that slide up. There you go, right there. So what is coveting? Does that mean we should have no desire at all? No, that's not what it means, right? That would be a Buddhist Eastern philosophy that says desire itself is bad because desire is what makes you crave something and then not having something or suffering that comes about because of that is all because you desired it in the first place. So just get rid of all desire, then you won't miss anything and you won't experience any suffering. It's this emptying of oneself in that way. But that's not the biblical view of desire. The Bible talks about godly desires and godly ambitions that are good. And the, desiring the bare necessities in life is good, not bad. To desire to have food and clothing and shelter are all good things. To de desire to have sleep and work and sex and children and shelter, that's not coveting. Those are good things God has given us. The tenth command is not against all desires then, but forbids disordered or ungoverned desire. Now that raises a question, right? If you're thinking, you're like, okay, well, how do I know? <laughs> how do I know when my desire is a good desire or when my desire has become disordered and ungodly? Well, there's probably lots of ways we can talk about that, and we don't have time to do that today. But I do want to talk to you uh, and suggest three ways that we can think about that. The first is this, that disordered desire is self-absorbed. So this is one of the ways you'll know if you're coveting. Disordered desire that is self-absorbed. It's me-focused. It's all about me. Show me the money. It's all about me, right? When it's that, it's self-absorbed, and it's probably a disordered desire. Make me happy. Make me satisfied. Make me complete. Do you remember what Jesus told us about the Ten Commandments when he was asked about that? And he sums up the whole law, and he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What is he saying? He is saying that coveting does not 
love your neighbor. Why? Because it wishes less for your neighbor and more for you. And your neighbor can have the leftovers after you get what you want. Or maybe you wish it would be the same, but it's still me-focused. It's still self-absorbed. So one way that we might know that we're coveting is that our disordered desire is self-absorbed. But a second way we would know is that our disordered desire will act dishonorably. It will act dishonorably. That is to say, when that desire springs forth to action, it may lead you to steal. It may lead you to cheat to get what you want. It may lead you to use other people as your tools so that you can get the thing that you think you need to feed your greed. Maybe at work you you will use other people um, and disrespect them to get your way and what you want because you're focused on me. Maybe you will use people dishonorably trying to leapfrog them in order to, to get ahead, right? And then you're not loving them well, but because of what you're coveting, you're self-absorbed and then dishonoring them as well. Maybe you'll, you'll use people to, to display power that you think you should have so that you can make all the decisions that make it good for you and what you want. Maybe you use people for money. I mean, right, we could go on and on in the ways that we might use and exert power in ways to get what we want. There's a, a story in the book of 1 Kings chapter 21. We're not going to turn there. Um, but that powerfully demonstrates this coveting aspect. And the story is about a man named Naboth and the king of Israel named Ahab. The king of Israel has his palace and he has his own vineyard. And he sits on his palace and he's overlooking uh, his vineyard, but he sees another vineyard that borders his land belonging to Naboth, and it's a better vineyard than the one he's got. And he's like, man, I wish I had Naboth's vineyard. So what does he do? He goes to Naboth, and he makes a fair offer. He's like, I really like your vineyard. I will trade you your vineyard for mine. Or if that's not satisfactory, I will pay you what it's worth. Naboth declined the offer because this vineyard was the land of his family's inheritance, and he's like, I will not give up my family's land of inheritance that they were given to us, that was given to us as the land was settled. Naboth, or sorry, King Ahab is very sad by that. He goes back into his, his house, his mansion, he sits down, and it says he's very sullen. And his wife, who is Queen Jezebel, is quite a wicked lady, you could read about her in other places as well, but she sees him sulking, and she's like, what is wrong with you? And he's like, well, I really want that vineyard, but I can't have it. And she's like, well, why not? And she, he explains, and she says, well, I'll help you get it. He's like, okay, that'd be great. So she orchestrates a plan so that two false witnesses will come up to accuse Naboth of a crime that he didn't commit, and then he would have to be executed for it. And she actually carries it out. It actually happens. Then the land is now not owned by Naboth, so the king takes it over. So you see what happened there? Ahab is coveting, breaking the tenth commandment. Jezebel's like, I'll help you, and she agrees to break the sixth, murder, the eighth, stealing, and then the ninth, lying, and the tenth, coveting along with him, right? I mean, this desire explodes into action that spills over and affects everybody's lives around them. When coveting turns to action, it will end up dishonoring others, sometimes in very overt ways and sometimes in more subtle, covert ways. But make no mistake, it will dishonor others. Thirdly, disordered desire is actually idolatry. We're told this, Paul tells us this in Colossians 3, verse 5. He says, idolatry 
is here at summing this whole sentence. This is all idolatry, he's saying. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Even that is idolatry. In other words, all those things are saying, if you're pursuing all those things sinfully, then what you are doing is saying, I want another God who will give me this, what I want. In essence, we could say, coveting is saying, God, I, I really don't like the way you're running the world or at least my part of the world if I were God I would do and as soon as you get to that point you're saying God is not good he is not sufficient he is not enough and if you were God you would do it better which is idolatry this is what Paul's saying this coveting in this way puts us in the place of God saying I would make it better now, again, we're not talking about bare necessities, right? There are good things in life that we can pursue and go after. It's not wrong to have things or possessions. The Bible talks a lot about that. How your heart is engaged with those does matter. And this is what coveting gets at. So where does sin begin? It begins with the heart, right? That's why Proverbs 4 says to guard the heart for it is the wellspring of life. It's like Jesus says, your words come from your heart. From our heart is where these desires and cravings come. And this means that since sin always begins with craving, one of the things that we learn from the 10th commandment is that sinful desires are in themselves sinful things idolatrous. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, sin is not simply an action that's done. It's a desire in your heart that is actually wrong and sinful in itself. The seed of every sin is sown in every person's heart. And the challenge for us is how do we live in such a way that those desires don't become disordered don't become ungoverned or uncontrolled, but that we live the way God is calling us to live. How do we do that? How do we then become content is the second point we're going to talk about. How do you move from coveting to contentment? Part of the frustration in this is that we would love three simple or five simple steps to do or even ten commandments that would say, here's how you do it, this is how you stop. But the tenth commandment points out for us that Moving to contentment isn't simply about behavior modification. It is an inside-out character transformation that has to happen because it's starting on the inside. And so until you deal with the inside, it's not going to get affected well on the outside. And so what this means for step one that I'm going to give you today on this, the way that you become content is by grace. It's by grace. Until you understand, until you are able to rest in, receive, soak, like you're sitting on the beach in a chair, soaking in the sun and just saying, this is so great. Until you can do that with God's grace and know that it overwhelms you, that it warms you, that it, that it meets you where you are, that it's poured out upon you, you won't be content. Let me give you two biblical examples of this that Paul gives us. One is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. He says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, 
I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. That's what God said to Paul. Paul didn't get relief from this thorn in his flesh. He didn't get healing from it. He had to endure it, as long as we know, for the rest of his life. Without relief, that condition, that circumstance, didn't change for him. But what he had to learn was, grace is enough. Or again, in Philippians, Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, he talks about the secret of contentment. And he says, I'm saying this not because I'm in, I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I know I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, we like to take that verse right there and say, all right, kids, gather around. Soccer game's going. You can do this. You can do all things through Christ. He's got you. Go. And there's sort of truth to that, but that's contextually not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about, I'm in prison, and I got nothing but Jesus. That's all I got. And he will be my strength in the worst of times, not just for me to go complete, compete in the Olympic Games or whatever it might be. He's learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Paul is actually saying, in Philippians 4, verse 13, he's actually saying, I can sing the song, Christ is enough for me. Remember we sing that song, Christ is enough for me? It's all I need. Really? It's a hard one to sing, isn't it? If you think about the words and you're singing it, and you're, in my head I'm going, sometimes. Okay, yes, today. Other times I'm like, mm, really? Christ, Paul is saying, I've got nothing. I'm in prison. I've got no freedom. I've got food. I've got shelter. But other than that, I've got no, none of the desires I would love to have. But Christ is enough for me. And he says, that's how I became content. That's how I became content. Now, what Paul is not saying here, or, yeah, he's not saying this. He's, it's not a fake contentment. It's not of like, it's not this situation where like, hey, just pile on the suffering because suffering's all good and it makes me learn to be content. That's not what he's saying, okay? He would love to be out of jail and free. I mean, he pursues that, right? And eventually he does get out of jail and gets transferred in different places, right? So he would love that. That's not a bad desire to have. For you, if you break your arm, the way to contentment is not saying, well, at least I didn't break both arms. Like as if somehow suffering more would just lead you to less contentment or more contentment, right? It's okay to be sad and sorry that your arm is broken. It's okay to grieve loss when we lose family members. It's okay to do that. The Bible teaches us that that's not normal. That's not the way the world should be. It's okay to be sorry for that and grieve that. It's not like we should just say, pile on the suffering so I can learn to be content. What Paul is saying is that if you find yourself saying, I cannot be happy with the basic necessities that I have unless I also get fill in the blank, then what you 
are saying is Christ won't be enough for me, right? Christ won't be enough for me. I actually need another idol to complete me, to help me, to make life better. This is hard for Americans to grasp. It's hard for me to grasp, honestly. I wrestle with this a lot. Because I want, I want a lot. (laughs) But we live in the land of plenty. And it's so normal in our society just to say, here's what you have, want more, get the next thing. That's just normal. It's expected. If you don't say that, you're like, what's wrong with you? You should go see a doctor. This is hard for us to grasp. What Paulo is saying is contentment isn't found in changing your circumstances, nor is contentment found in your ability of self-sufficiency. What he is saying is contentment is found in the sufficiency of Christ for you. Let me put it another way. Contentment is forged in us through trials when we come to know and trust that we can lose anything because in Jesus we already have everything. If you can get to that point, contentment becomes real and deep and abiding. I'm not saying that's an easy point to get to. But that's what Paul is saying when I've lost everything, when it's been all taken away and I've got nothing left. Can Christ sustain me? Can I be content in him? Will he be enough for me? And that's what Paul is saying. Yes, yes, yes. So it's by grace. Secondly, though, becoming content is becoming grateful. One of our middle school, Sunday school teachers, John Kerwin, likes to say, the secret sauce in life is thankfulness. And here we come into this week of Thanksgiving. We should be thankful. But how does thankfulness or gratefulness or gratitude actually help in this situation? Uh, let me ask you this. When you, when you express thanks, what does that sound like? When you, you get in a mood and you're thankful and you're going to express that, does it sound like this? I am so thankful to myself for everything I've achieved and earned and acquired. If you're a narcissist, yes. Usually, though, thanks is other-directed. It's directed toward other people and what they've done and how that's been good and beneficial for others or even you, and then directed at God and thankful for what he's done. So we might say, I'm so thankful for this person who's been so kind and encouraged me, this teacher or this coach who's had my back and helped me through life. I'm so thankful for this, this friend, this student who's helped me learn in this class when I didn't get it. Or I'm so thankful to God for his blessings in my life because he has blessed me in so many ways. Right? Thankfulness looks away from self. It's not self-absorbed. and looks to how we've been blessed by others. So let me ask you a few questions about gratitude. Can you be thankful and content even when you have very little? You know, true confessions for me? No, it's really hard to do. Um, Sometimes not all the time. It's a constant battle, this commandment. Like, okay, am I content? Another question. Do you rejoice with others when they are blessed, or are you just jealous of them? When they're blessed, do you actually rejoice? Like, I am so happy. That is so good for them. Or are you like, I wish I had their stuff? Here's another question. Can you see what your neighbor has, be excited, and even wish that they would get more and you would be excited? 
right? That, that, that's probably hard to do. But here's, here's what I'm trying to, to drill down and say this is re related to gratitude and griping, and we can put this on the screen. When gratitude is a stranger and griping is your friend, you are cultivating covetousness rather than contentment. Let's move to the third and final thing. We'll wrap up here. And that is practicing generosity. Practicing generosity. Generosity is the antidote to coveting. Um, it focuses on giving rather than on receiving, right? And giving is not just something for the rich to do, though if we were to look around the world, you and I are in like the richest 1% of everybody on the planet. But it's not just for the rich. Giving doesn't just start like once you have had enough. Like, okay, I've got enough now. Now that I have enough, out of the leftovers, now that I'm satisfied with all my coveting, I'll give out of my leftovers. That's not how biblical generosity thinks or is constructed. Biblical generosity says, God has given me everything I have and gave sacrificially for me. So generosity starts from the get-go, from the beginning, to give something out of what God has given me, out of whatever I have. This is why Jesus says to the rich young ruler who comes to him and, and says, he's like, I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can follow you. And Jesus says, well, well, how about give away your possessions and sell and give it away to the poor? And he said he could keep all the other commandments, but this one on coveting, he couldn't, and he left sad. And Jesus says in that moment, he says something that's very insightful and probes to the very depth of our heart. He says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Your possessions don't define you. That's not what makes up all of your life. I have some friends who are generous people, and have, have helped um, people raise money and work with nonprofits and stuff. And one day we were on his boat um, and sitting there talking, and um, they were talking about generosity and giving and just trying to encourage each other in that, like, how are we giving more away? Like, how are we becoming more generous as followers of Jesus? And so we were all talking about it. And they have, uh, in midlife now, become successful businessmen. And so they said, each of them said their goal, they've been giving more and more, and their goal is to give away more than they keep each year. Now, not everybody can do that, but everybody can have a heart that's generous and says, what, what can I give of what, have, what God's blessed me with? What can I give? Because giving starts from the heart, deciding that you'll be generous with what you have. And you may ask me, well, should I give if my heart's not really in it? My answer to that is twofold. One is, yes, you should give, because sometimes your habits begin to change your heart and you learn the benefits. So, for example, like six months ago, some friends challenged me to, to exercise because they were doing it and we all needed it. And we're like, all right, let's just start. We're going to do 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and 100 squats a day. Then we text each other and berate each other when we failed and sent cupcake messages back and forth, like, get on it. And at first, I hated it. Like, I couldn't even do 10 push-ups. But so then I started doing it more and more, and I got to where I liked it because I had the accountability and because I could feel the benefit of it, that it was good for me. You see, sometimes your habit can actually form your attitudes and change them and help them. But, but the second part of this question is, should I give if I don't really want to? Is I would say, if you don't want to give, then you don't really understand or experience the good news of God's grace to you. You're failing in that moment to trust in Jesus, 
forgetting the generosity of Jesus given to you on the cross. So what, do you, what should you do? To become content and generous, don't start with calculating. Start with the cross. See, because entitlement makes you envious and covetousness develops. Only grace will make you more grateful and more generous. How do you combat coveting? You have to know grace. Do you know the person of grace, Jesus, who comes and pours it out upon us? You got to know him. And if you know him, it'll begin to affect your habits and your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to be people who um, are so moved by your grace and kindness to us that it does affect us both in our habits and our heart, that we become grateful and generous people living in light of your goodness to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.